You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year, a comedy podcast looking back at this week in history. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music, Podbean, iHeartRadio, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. If you want to follow us on social medias or message us with some suggestions for worst ever segments, you can do that over on Facebook or Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, when a problem comes along, he must whip it. When the cream sits out too long, he must whip it. It's Mr. Jeff McLaughlin. And I do it with a plastic bucket on my head. <laughs> Power dome. And I do that while a, a cross-eyed girl tries to shoot a beer can <laughs> off my head. Yes. The worst part is that I wanted to do that, but then I was through being cool. <laughs> There are people listening right now saying, what the they hell must are have these dropped guys acid before this episode because what on earth are they talking about? I'm not going to tell you. You can figure it out on your own. Do your so own anyway, research, people. Yeah, do your own research. So before we uh, logged on today to record, matter of fact, I didn't get a chance to finish watching the video because the phone rang. I was watching this video of a man who had an excellent idea. He got like a weather balloon. Yep. It was a big-ass things. And then he hooked up a GoPro camera to it. And then he also hooked up, like, a arm. And on that arm was, like, a little plate. And yep. on that plate was a Big Mac that he strapped down. And he launched the Big Mac <laughs> into the stratosphere. Nice. Like, it rose into the air for an hour and 45 minutes. Jeez. Yeah. Until the, uh, uh, the atmospheric pressure got to the balloon, popped it. And they had a GPS on it, you know? Yeah. And it ended up landing like an hour away. And it took a half an hour to fall. That's how high up it got. Oof. And his idea was he wanted to see if a hamburger tasted different after being in space. (laughs) I'm surprised that it actually got to the stratosphere, considering, was it like last year we had all the, my God, the Chinese balloons are coming, you know, like, scramble the planes. So I can imagine there would have been like an you know an F twenty two or something saying like we can see it's a hamburger, sir. <laughs> you know, yeah. and are you sure it's not a chicken sandwich from Burger King? Because those are really good. <laughs> there may be French fries. Repeat <laughs> over. Yeah, it seems to be a happy meal. To know that he did that—that's pretty cool. I watched videos like I was like ten years ago, yep. right as digital cameras became really small and popular and light. Whereas, like, high school kids and stuff would throw a camera up into the stratosphere and it would film the whole way up and then the whole way down so they could get to the edge of space. That's really kind of neat, right? Right. To do it with a hamburger is really funny. Yeah, that's a little extra. So it came down, they found it, but when they found the balloon and the parachute and this, that, and the other, the hamburger was gone. And it's like, well, I wonder what happened to it. It's like, I know what happened to it. Some freaking animal ate it. (laughs) Hamburglar. They live in the stratosphere. <laughs> <It's a> rubble, rubble, <laughs> rubble, rubble. <laughs> okay, uh, everybody under the age of forty has no idea what we just said. That's okay though. It's pr- it's pretty funny. I, do you know it was a McDonald's hamburger, right? That's what you said. Big they Mac. said it was a Big Mac. Yeah, yeah. So 
I, I like, like, if I'm going to go to McDonald's and eat meat at some point in the future, that's probably what I'll order, because that was always one of my favorite sandwiches there. Yeah, comfort there was a food, day, yeah. Uh, not everybody loves uh, McDonald's hamburgers, though. Sure. I took my dog to the park. <laughs> like, on, like, I don't know why I thought this would be fun, but it was like, a me and my dog bonding moment. Yeah. Right? And rather than just take my dog to the dog park and let her run around and sniff other dogs' butts... I went to the human park with her on a leash and I brought us, I got us both McDonald's hamburgers. So I was eating a hamburger and I got one just for her with like no pickles on it and no ketchup. Right. And I'm eating mine happily and I'm like, here you go, Oreo, here you go. And she just looked at me like, what am I supposed to do with that? And then she sniffed (laughs) at it and she looked at me like, I'm not eating that. I'm going to go sit at the end of my leash and lick my own (laughs) asshole. Are you going to throw that? Am I supposed to bring that back to you like a Frisbee or something? I'm not, I'm not putting that in my mouth. I can imagine her in her like dog brain. She's like Krusty the Clown when he has to eat a Krusty Burger on camera. And he's like, oh, God, I almost swallowed some of the juice. But yeah, it was really funny. She would not touch it. So I ended up eating her hamburger. <laughs> and Oreo, even like as a, a puppy, I remember, Oreo was never like a go-fetch kind of dog. She's not. She's like a yeah. go-pick-it-up-yourself kind of dog. Yeah. You throw something and she just looks at you like, uh-huh. Well, yeah, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> sucks to be you. You're going to have to go all the way over there. I guess you got to go pick thing. that ball up now. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So before we get the show started, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Oh, man. This one threw me for a curve. I was like, oh, this will make a good okay. question. Is it a Big um, Mac in space? No. Did I get it right? No. A Whopper, then. Uh, it's a chicken sandwich. Rats. <laughs> You should have got Oreo the chicken sandwich. Those are really good. The torpedoes. Uh, you know, if, if I could go back in time and do it again, I probably just wouldn't do it. <laughs> all right. Trivia question. So, all right. Uh, out of all the streets in the United States of America, what is the most common street name? The most common street name. Yep. Okay. I'll tell you at the end of the show. All right. So this is going to be the week beginning November the 6th, and it is your turn to start. November the 6th, 1972, Bill. Do you remember 1972? Do you like remember November yesterday. 6th? <laughs> like it was yesterday. What was I doing now? November 6th, 1972. Uh, probably in my pajamas watching I was, Sesame Street. I was probably listening to a Jackson 5 record in 1972 in my pajamas. But someone else born on November 6th, 1972 was taking their first breath. That would be actress Rebecca Romaine who you may know from films such as X-Men and X-Men 2. And she was in one of the Punisher movies, too. She's been in a few things here and there. She was a Sports Illustrated swimsuit model. Yeah. And at one time, she was married to... John um, Stamos. Yeah, John Stamos. She was Rebecca Roman Stamos. I remember our mutual friend Jim referring to John Stamos as the luckiest man that was ever born. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and then she got into acting. Like you said, she played Mystique in the uh, the X-Men films. Not a lot of talking she had to do, but she didn't have to talk. She just had to look good, mm-hmm. and, and that she did. So a couple of weeks ago, I was over at the Comic-Con in Connecticut at, with one of the casinos. Yep. And this tall woman walks by me, and she's a little overdressed. She's also like a little older. She looks like she's in her 40s, but mm-hmm. this woman is beautiful. And as she's walking by me, I was like, wow, what a beautiful woman. She kind of looks like Rebecca Romaine. And then it took me like 30 seconds and I just went, duh. 
because Rebecca Romaine was there signing autographs. I knew that. I just didn't put it together when she walked right by me. Uh, yeah, so Rebecca Romaine walked right by me. Beautiful one. That's a that's a story for the ages, Bill. A story for the ages. Yeah, she's currently married to Jerry O'Connell, who was at the Comic-Con, not signing autographs, but was going around taking selfies with everybody because he's awesome. That's that's very cool. Wow. wow. Yeah. So she went from like one TV guy to another TV guy. She's got a type, I guess, yeah. I guess so. That's cool. All right, moving on. November the 7th, 1965, the Pillsbury Corporation starts using the Pillsbury Doughboy in their television commercials, 1965, yeah. And we all know who we're talking about. They had the little chef-looking white piece of dough. Poppin' Fresh, that's his name. Yeah, his name's Poppin' Fresh, yeah. And you would poke him in the stomach, and he goes, and he'd giggle, yeah. Yes, they still use them. You still, uh, they still use them. They still use them in the commercials. He's still the right. spokesperson. You know, fifty some odd years later here. Right. Uh, so, I have this weird story about the Pillsbury Doughboy. Oh, it's a do weird. Tell. It's a it's a little cute little one L story. So, I was this little kid, and I'm kind of burying the lead here. Okay. But, you know, it's Christmas time, and my mom's like, you know, what do you want for Christmas? I'm like two, three years old, probably about the same time Rebecca Romaine was born. And I kept saying, I want Pibbly. Right. Pibbly, you know? And they weren't sure if I was trying to say my own name, because my name's Bill, you know? And, uh... Um, <laughs> what do you want for Christmas? I want myself. It yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Yes. Yeah. I'm trying to find myself. out of your, I was very zen back then. So, you know, my mother brings me to the child world, the toy store, and she's walking me up and down the aisles, because she doesn't know what the hell I'm talking about, Pibbly. Right. She doesn't know. And she's, like, hoping that I'll see it, and then I'll point it out to her, right? Right. So she's like, is this Pillbilly? Is this Pillbilly? So she ta- She stops the girl that works there, and she's like, look, my kid wants Pillbilly. I don't know what he's talking about. She's like, she says to me, she's like, tell the girl what you want. So I was like, Pillbilly, like, frustrated. You know, I've had it. She's like, ah, Pillbilly, you know? Yep. And the girl goes, is he? Do you think he's saying Pillsbury? And I light up like a freaking Christmas tree, jumping up and down. Pibbly, Pibbly, Pibbly. So my mom buys me the Pillsbury Doughboy kind of like, you know, I don't want to say stuffed animal. It's not a stuffed animal, but like right. a little action figure. You know, it's about maybe six, seven inches tall. I'm right. Six feet tall. Seven foot tall Pillsbury Doughboy. <laughs> so at any rate, maybe about 20 years ago, for Christmas one year, my brother found one. I think he said he found it on eBay. Mm-hmm. And he bought me a Pillsbury Doughboy from that era. You know, it's huh, the, one of the funny. original ones. Yeah. And I have it. It's sitting on my desk. I got it in my hand right now. I just picked it up. I'm looking at Pillbilly right now. So this is so funny. So this seeds the question, though, what, back Go when ahead. you were a wee little Bill. Yes. And you got a pop and fresh figure as a yep. wee little kid. Because it didn't move talk make the hoo-hoo noise when you poked its belly like were you disappointed as a little kid or were you able to like get over that and be like oh no i can still make this do all those things oh myself i I was probably disappointed like there was no easter bunny yeah yeah like finding out that walt disney wasn't really frozen i remember that day too (laughs) um (laughs) oh no they fed him to the sharks yeah but no i remember when my brother got me the the Poppin' Fresh off of eBay, I remember opening up the box and just like very excited looking, looking at my brother and going, Bill Billy! <laughs> All right. Enough about my childhood. What do you got for the next day? November 8th, 1887. 
The first flat disc record player is patented by Emil Berliner. Up to that point, recorded voice it's was... It's been I, Berliner. Uh, yes, it's been I, Berliner. Uh, up to that point, the human voice or music could be recorded onto a wax cylinder, but they were really fragile. And they were a patent that was owned by Thomas Edison. They were also difficult to produce it in, in mass. So there was no, like, you couldn't go buy a single of, like, Kaiser Wilhelm. Because that was one of the guys that had a, <laughs> you know, the, the Kaiser Wilhelm experience, right? Is giving a speech yep. in German. The flat discs with the flat disc record player, known as a gramophone, made it a lot easier to standardize and quickly produce the wax discs that were used to record popular music and human voice at the time and make them easier to transport, easier to manage in retail establishments, easier to carry from like store to home without them breaking, etc. And it yep. started the revolution in recorded music. And easier for DJs to scratch. Definitely easier. Can't do that with a wax cylinder. You can, but they just shatter into a million pieces. Now, and, these, are, uh, these early, early records were not like the 33 and the third records that we have now. They were very, like, thick and heavy. Yeah. My friend had a old Victrola mm-hmm. that was like it was like, an, like a gramophone, like, yep. like you got. As a matter of fact, to make it louder, you open the doors on it. Yes. Th- that, that was the volume control. It was, uh, it was wide up. It wasn't electric. Yep. And the records were kind of big. And they were very, I remember they were very heavy. Yes. And there would be one song on it. One song, one side. The other side was smooth and flat. Smooth and flat. Yes. And that's that's the way that they originally, they were about an eighth of an inch thick, maybe a little bit thicker than that. Mm-hmm. The way that the gramophone worked was it, it works the same with the same principles kind of as a modern record player, except instead of moving a magnet and collecting electrical signals that go to an amplifier and speaker, it moves a needle that then jiggles a, a diaphragm inside of a cone, and that makes the sound of what's on the record come out. So it sounds different, but it's still a good representation of whatever is recorded. And there were some that you could record into the cone to capture voice. All right, yeah. All those initial recordings are very, very... If you're into bass, if you're all about that bass, no trouble... Future worst song ever. Mm-hmm. If you're all about that, you are not going to enjoy gramophone music. Everything no. sounds like a, a bad telephone call. Yeah, it's very tinny. And that's. Yeah, you get that. Don't sit under the apple tree with anybody else <laughs> but me. Yeah. And that, and that song is like legit 30 years later. Yes, but that's, that's exactly the sort of sound profile that you get from a gramophone. That sort of high, crackly, because that's what travels better. No wonder people started saying things like, oh, I hate with the sound of my recorded voice. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. When you sound like a, a Maxwell House can. <laughs> you sound sure. like, everybody sounds like Rudy Valley. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So moving on to November the 9th, 1961, the X-15 rocket plane under the United States Air Force Major Robert M. White achieved a world record speed or 4,093 miles an hour. That's That's Mach point six. It's a little bit over Mach 6. And then then reached, uh, it was over 101,000 feet for altitude. Wait, 4,000 miles an hour? (laughs) Yeah, 4,000 miles an hour. That's really fast. And 101,000 feet is the edge of space. So you were certainly able to see the curvature of the Earth from that speed. Although I'm sure at 4,093 miles an hour, 
the only you can probably I, see the back of your own head at that speed. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that if if it if I had been Major Robert White, I would have just had my eyes slammed shut, expecting to die at any second. Nineteen miles in the air, four thousand miles an hour, right? And you can almost hear the disappointment too. It's like four thousand and ninety three, like seven more miles, and you would add a nice round number of forty one hundred. Right. right. No. Nope. Nope, we're all tapped out over here. Right. Mach 6, dude. That's so... Don't you go, like... Don't you... Whenever they used to put those people in the... What do they call that one? It's centrifuge? Like a, a, that's it. Whenever they put the people, like, in the centrifuge, which is, like, basically a carnival ride for daredevils. Um, <laughs> or astronauts. Yeah, they spin you around, like, super fast, and, like... After you hit so many G's like that, you just pass out. Your brain just can't handle it. Well, yeah, that's a little bit different, though. The way that he gets to 4,093 miles an hour isn't the same. It's a continuous uh, acceleration. And I'm sure that there's one or two G's that is pushing him back into the seat. But he's not, mm-hmm. as long as he's not turning the, the plane to try and like make a tight turn, that's where you increase G's until you get to red out or black out. So if you're okay. going in a straight line, you'll get pushed back as you accelerate, but you're not uh, trying to change direction, which would squish you at 4,093 okay. miles per hour. He could probably move after he got used to it. Okay. All yeah. Right, yeah. As long as he doesn't deviate left or right. right yeah, exactly. Which, Don't touch the wheel. Just, yeah, exactly. Just like plash up and give it to the side of it like the Borgs in uh, one of those Star Wars movies. Yes. I can't even imagine. Like you said, he must have just been picturing himself dying. Instantly, because all it would take is like a fly fart to throw you off in either direction. <laughs> You're just pressed up against the thing. Well, the, 4, you know, the, miles the, an hour. the funny thing is, like, if you listen to the recording of his uh, of his flight, you can hear, you know, th- them counting up the speed. And then he gets to 4,093 miles per hour. He, there were a small band of like uh, windows on the front of the of the front of the rocket plane. And his response was, look, kids, Big Ben Parliament. <laughs> and then look, kids, Big Ben Parliament, which is like less than a minute later because he's going so so fast, he's going almost around the Earth every few minutes. Look, kids, Big Ben Parliament, dude. That's you know that old so that old uh, thing there around the world in eighty days. Yeah, I mean not that the, not that this guy has the fuel to do it, but then you can go around the world in six hours. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Very fast, and and yet they still lost his luggage. All right. <laughs> All right, what do you got for the 10th? All right, November 10th, uh, 1981. Kiss. Remember them, Bill? A band that we yeah, almost never talk about on this show. Yeah. <laughs> that that, we're, that we're, obscure band that nobody's that obs- ever heard of. Obscure right. band that no one's ever heard of. And and we've talked about virtually all of the good things that Kiss has ever done up to this point. Mm-hmm. Well, in although 1980- we did talk, Although we did talk about Hot in the Shade a couple of weeks ago. We did. I, I, well, this uh, compared to this record, Hot in the Shade is rock and roll over. So in 1981... Debatable. In 1981... I will argue that point. In, our, in 1981, Kiss released the project album called Music from the Elder, which was Gene Simmons' idea to do a Pink Floyd the Wall type record and then realized that nobody in Kiss could write. Actually, he wanted to do a movie. Yeah, he wanted to do a movie. <laughs> He wrote out like a script treatment. And let me tell you something. Gene Simmons, if nothing else, is ambitious. Right. Okay. So he wrote out this like uh, script treatment for a movie called The Elder. Mm -hmm. And then 
you know, shopped it around, so to speak, and everybody was like, aren't you the guy with the tongue and the flames and all that? Get the hell out of my office. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so says that they're, instead they're going to write a concept album. Right. Now, this is 1981. This is literally two years after Pink Floyd The Wall. Right. And Bob Ezrin, who produced Pink Floyd The Wall, produced this album. Yeah. So they write this concept album, which don't ask me what the story is. I don't know. <laughs> I literally never heard this album. I owned every Kiss album at one point or another, except for Hot in the Shade and Music <laughs> from the Elder. Right? <laughs> and and there was like an, an, another one that got released posthumously. But I have owned at least digitally every Kiss album, except mm-hmm. I, but I never heard Music from the Elder until maybe five years ago. Yeah. And I heard the nightmares of it, you know, this yep. album tanked. But you know what? It isn't horrible. It just <laughs> isn't what you want to listen to when you want to hear a Kiss album. Right. I, I'm sure that during the, the process of converting his multi-hour screenplay into music, he was thinking... Yeah. Forty-eight minutes or yeah, whatever. It is, yeah. yeah, forty minutes. Gene Simmons is like, "Well, I'm gonna have to cut the part out where we fight the Phantom of the Park, <laughs> and uh, I'm gonna have to cut the part out where I get laid. <laughs> um, we're gonna have to throw Ace out of the band. Oh, Ace! Ace didn't want to be in the band anymore at this point. What <laughs> makes this album so remarkable is this was the first album that they did without Peter Chris. Yeah, right. Now, we make fun of Peter Chris for leaving, you know, the biggest rock band in the world at the time, Kiss, and having this monumentally awesome solo career. But, <laughs> yes. But Peter Chris shows up been... as, a, as a guest on Ace Frehley's tour where he plays places that also have a, an early bird special on Prime Radio. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Peter Chris, at this point in time, must have been giggling his little cat makeup right off. Because this was the first album that they did without him. They right. had replaced Peter Chris with Eric Carr at this point. And I always, even as a little kid when this album came out, I always felt so bad for Eric Carr. Because right. here he is with the dream gig. He's the new drummer for Kiss. Right. And they put out this. You know? <laughs> yeah. This and crummy, unfocused the- record, yeah. Well, the worst part about it, Jeff, is the record company changed the song order. Mm -hmm. So it's a concept album that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. It's like watching Memento. It it just jumps off. You can't tell what the concept of the album (laughs) is because it's it's like you drop the script of the movie or like one of your books on the floor and you didn't number the pages. Right. And then I tried to put it back together as best I could. Some yeah. of the pages are upside down and they're out of order. And uh, yep. Completely disjointed. Been there. Uh, hi- highlights of the album is a song called I, which is a rockin' little song. I like that one a lot. Mm-hmm. Escape from the Island is an instrumental, which is arguably one of the better albums, uh, songs on the album. Mr. Blackwell is a Gene Simmons song that's really good. Mm-hmm. Dark Light is an Ace Frehley song that's actually really good. And there's a song on here that was released as a single that didn't do well. It's called The World Without Heroes that Cher actually did a cover of on one of her albums a few years later. Huh. 
And the last piece of uh, oddball trivia for this is there's some spoken parts in the on the album or throughout the album, and the hero of our story is voiced by I don't know the actor's name. He's Canadian. But he was the one that played Woody Dewabbit in Meatballs, that kid. <laughs> oh, Christopher Makepeace. Is that his name? Yeah, that's the kid. Yeah. Yeah. He did the yeah, he does the voices in uh in Kiss's Elder. So I feel bad for his career too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll have to give it another listen, knowing a little bit more of the history about it and see if see if I still have the aversion to it I did in the early nineteen eighties when I was like, I don't know what this is, but I don't like it. All right, so moving on, November the eleventh, nineteen forty. The Jeep makes its debut. Ah, yes. The Jeep vehicle. Do you know what Jeep? Do you know what? No, do you know why it's called Jeep? This is an easy trivia question. There's a yeah. There's a couple of different th- uh, suggestions that it was. It's short for general purpose, and it was meant for general purpose transport. There's a couple of other theories that it's related to like model designation or the shipping designation for it when it was going to Europe. I always liked it better as like it's probably Jeep is short for general purpose. Yeah, that's what, that's what I had always heard. Yeah, because yeah, they were used in army vehicles and stuff like that. Yep. You would always see them on MASH. Yes. Yep. Radar, get the numbers off that Jeep. It's the first yep. like good line in the movie. Jeeps went through a long uh, – they have a, a long hit. They're still sold today under the same brand name, although the uh-huh. ownership of Jeep and its patents has changed considerably since 1940. Originally, right. it was they were produced by um, because it was the war effort, International Harvester, American General, Chevrolet, a couple of other places. But it was all based on the same set of plans. Mm-hmm. Once World War II ended, the plans reverted to American AM General, and AM General, as part of a, the what would become the American Motors Company, manufactured Jeeps in the same style, specific to use in the post office. They had a government contract to buy so many oh. Jeeps every year. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And then in the, the ni- uh, by the 1970s, uh, AMC, the company that was American Motors, yep, started to release Jeeps that could be purchased for the civilian market or for like the the regular people market, and that was like the first Jeep CJ. CJ is civilian Jeep, right? Oh, all right. And they the, started to become the post really popular. office still uses kind of Jeep vehicles, don't they? No, they they stopped. Uh, well, I'll get to that. Um, and I'll get I'll get there quick, but okay. uh, what happened was a- AMC's only breadbasket that made any money year to year was American General selling Jeeps to the government. When AMC was purchased by merged with Renault in France because they needed the money, yeah. they spun off American General, and it okay. it just ceased to be. And then other companies could start to bid for and then get contracts to deliver vehicles that the post office used. And without that money, AMC went. They disappeared in the early 1980s. Well, whatever they're using for mail delivery trucks now, they still kind of look Jeep-ish. Yes, but they're they're manufactured by the same company that makes the Hummer H1. Oh, okay. So I can't. It's like General Dynamics or something, but it's that's who does that. That's who makes those. All I really remember was um, my ex girlfriend Joanne when we when I first met her. She was driving around in a Jeep, but it wasn't her Jeep. It was her sister's Jeep. Mm-hmm. And the reason why Joanne had custody of the Jeep is because uh, her sister was pregnant. Oh. The doctor said, no, 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 no. I don't know what it is about the suspension on a Jeep, but he did not want her driving a Jeep during her pregnancy. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, okay. I mean, I can see if it was a Jeep from 1940 with a solid rear end and a solid rear axle, <laughs> but, and leaf springs, which would bounce all over the place. But it, that's way less the, the issue with anything that was manufactured by AMC and sold to the public. And then ultimately by Chrysler, who bought AMC for the nameplate, for the Jeep nameplate, and uh, kept it alive. And it's, it's, they, they are, are Stellantis, the company that now owns Chrysler. Yep. Owns the Jeep moniker. And they're still sold. I had a 1989 Jeep, uh, Jeep Wrangler, which is the throwback okay. to the 1940s Jeep. Uh, its greatest feature was the ability to require a tow truck to come and visit it <laughs> about every week for the year that I had it. It and me, it was, it was, it made me long for the for the stability of owning a Volkswagen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, let's wrap up the week. All right, November twelfth, twenty twenty, the PlayStation Five. The fifth generation of the PlayStation console is released and almost instantly becomes <laughs> unavailable in the marketplace. <laughs> and it, it immediately becomes like Pikachu when you're playing Pokemon Go. Yeah. Right. Like impossible to find. Yeah. And it's still, and would, it's still hard to find. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot easier now. But now, like as of this recording, I haven't bought one yet. I want one. I right. haven't bought one yet. I'm waiting for the price to drop because I hear that it's going to happen soon. Yeah, they're, um, they're the price of like a, almost a gaming computer at this point. They're like what six hundred bucks? Uh, no, I think they're five. Okay, I think they're five for the disc version, four for the non-disc version. Okay, but I think the price drop is supposed to be a hundred dollars. Oh so. wow! Yeah, or maybe it's six hundred and five hundred. It's going to drop to five and four. Either way, I'm not sure. I like I said, I haven't I haven't gotten one yet. Uh, I've seen them. I've seen them out in the wild, but that was just horrible marketing. Right. For PlayStation. But, I mean, you can see both ways. Like, one, if you don't release them that widely to the market, it makes people want to buy one because they're so hard to find. Right. You know, getting on waiting lists and this, that, and the other. Yep. Build excitement by building scarcity. Exactly. But now, here, like I'm talking, here we are three years later. I, As of this recording, I don't have one yet. I'm not, like, in a hurry to get one. It doesn't seem like a must-have item. I've done without it for three years. I don't absolutely need it. My issue with getting one is I'm not a huge console gamer anyway. There are games <laughs> that I like. It, w- it would need to have a Godzilla game that I could get for it. And two, uh, to upgrade to the PlayStation 5, I'm going to need to upgrade my TV, which I don't want to do. I don't want to get into the TV resolution arms race right, right now. Because then I'm going to have to upgrade my internet connection so that I can watch high-definition stuff through the PlayStation 5 on a high-resolution TV. And then what? Too much. Yeah, I have a 4K television, and I very rarely, if ever, use the 4K stuff on it. It's not that big of a deal to me. And also, you know, I'm half blind now because of glasses, so it doesn't really matter how sharp that picture is. Right. So... And also, I don't play video games on that television. I play video games downstairs in my home theater on my projector, right. which is definitely not 4K. So, yeah, the graphic upgrade is one thing, but I don't think I'm going to notice. No. Uh, you'll get one long before I will, and I'll have to come see what it's like at your house. All right. So before we get into the worst ever, I do have my weird-ass holiday for the week, and this one I picked out just for you, Jeff. November oh, yeah. the 8th, we will be celebrating Cook 
something bold day. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. So cook something bold. What are you going to cook? What's what's bold? Uh, what, you, what would you cook that's bold? Because the boldest thing bold? that I cook right now is chicken, rice, and broccoli in my pressure cooker. I'm adventurous. Adventurous. Uh, last week I made chickpea chain of masala and nan bread. It was good. I know what a chickpea is. Yeah. I paid $50 for that once. <laughs> it's a type of it's, uh, Indian food, which was which okay. was very good. Uh, but I don't know what I'll make next that's bold. I'll have to think about it. It'll be something with vegetables in it for sure, because still vegetarian, so. We'll you see. should make baba ganoush. I, you know, not I should make I, baba ganoush. Yeah. Not nope. because I particularly like it, I just particularly like saying it. Yes. I like saying it too, but I also really like eating it. So we had gone to this like Turkish restaurant and I had gotten shawarma. Yep. And it, and it came with a side dish of, uh, of hummus, right? But yes. I didn't want hummus because I don't really like chickpea all that much. Uh-huh. Um, so I asked the guy if you have anything else, and he and he said, "Do you like eggplant?" I go, "Oh, you're gonna tell me about baba ganoush, aren't you?" So he brought the baba ganoush, and I actually really, really liked it. Mm. Uh, but I don't like hummus. To me, hummus is equatable to the worst movie ever. All right, Jeff, this was your choice. It was indeed. Uh, and I think this is going to be one of those cases where, like, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the monkey's head yep. and the Pauly Shore movie. And there's a couple of these movies that we watched that they're horrible movies, but we kind of liked in one level or another. Yes. I, I don't this, think this is going to be so much the case this week. No, is this is not one of those movies at all. This is a movie that is, what's the best way to describe it? difficult Garbage. to sit through and <laughs> it's only 89 minutes long but it feels like it's 589 minutes long and it is just another piece in the puzzle that is the career of steven seagal where the further <laughs> along he gets towards today wherever he is today the smaller his roles get in the films that feature him as the lead actor such <laughs> is the case here and it's less a steven seagal movie than it is a steven seagal's body double movie and even <laughs> then steven seagal has less than 10 minutes of any screen time in here which is probably to the movie's benefit the movie we we're talking about is called the perfect weapon yes not perfect weapon that's a different movie yes the perfect weapon correct together we are rebuilding the world the director sees all your hard work and punish anyone who threatens the state or its citizens I felt like a machine for the past two years. I can't remember. It's all muddled and confusing. I have to know more. We spent too much time, too much effort, too many lives were lost to get this thing in order. We need somebody that can successfully take out the next aisle comes up. Condor is the best. Make him a perfect weapon. And this film is a mashup of two other films. One is Hitman. At least. At least. But for the big ones, it's it's the movie Hitman with Timothy Oliphant, which is based on the video game. Which is a yeah. decent movie. Not a bad flick at all. Good, you know, yeah. kind of cable actioner. And uh, John Wick, as if it was made by people who are in a community theater. 
That's the other part of this movie that it is. And it follows the... It John, follows... John, John Wick with a limited ammo budget. Yeah. Yeah, John Wicked Bad. Is that what it would be called? <laughs> <laughs> to make it worse, they stuff in some unnecessary post-apocalyptic sci-fi garbage to give oh, the film the gravitas. Whenever I brought this up on my fire stick, right, before I started watching it, you know, on Amazon it gives you... Because I watched it on Prime. I watched this, uh, you know, it gives you a very brief synopsis. And the first thing it says is, in the not-too-distant future, I'm like, this is <laughs> oh, going to be garbage. <laughs> this, right in the not-too-distant future. Garbage. Garbage right there. Uh, I'll give you the, the briefest of plot synopses for their audience so that you oh, can... Oh, I got pages of notes. You don't have to go oh, brief. Okay. Oh, good. <laughs> All right. Well, meet Condor, played by second banana actor Johnny Mesner. Good martial arts guy, though. Pretty good stuntman. Yep. You've, you may have seen him in other films being kicked in the head. That's his sort of claim to fame. I thought, whenever I was watching this movie, that he was not a martial arts actor because all the fight scenes were so clipped together. I was like, oh, this guy obviously can't fight. So meet Condor. Condor is an elite killer. The only thing he lacks is a barcode on the back of his neck. But he gets a phone call from the controller who tells him to go and kill someone. So he goes off and he kills a surprisingly large amount of people with a silenced pistol and then goes home and doesn't really remember what it is he's done because he's effectively like programmed to go do these things when the controller gives him an order. So it borrows a little bit from the Manchurian Candidate too. Yeah. In the, in the course of one of his assignments, after killing his way into and ultimately his way out of a building, he runs into a woman that he recognizes, but he doesn't remember why he recognizes her, just that he remembers that he loved her and he was responsible for her death. And it freaks him out and he leaves. He's like supposed to kill her and she's just kind of like gives him a wink and a smile and he yeah. puts his gun down. And oh my God, he's got two guns and he's like pointing them both at her, right? Yeah. Yep. And then she gives him the smile and he puts one of the guns down. And I'm yeah. like, that's not really doing a lot, is I'm only, I'm only going to shoot you to death halfway. So, yeah. ultimately, the reason that he's gone off to fight this guy is there's a totalitarian government called the state. So, th one of the things that you'll notice about this film is that no one has names, they just have titles. So, the, the government is called the state, and the person who runs the state is the director. That's Steven Seagal. Right. And the person that works for Steven Seagal is the controller. That's Richard Tyson. And Richard Tyson runs Condor. Condor is the assassin. So I'm surprised the name of this movie isn't called Working Title. <laughs> or just called Gun Movie. <laughs> it could be called <laughs> The Motion Picture. And it would still make perfect sense if that was the name. They set the tone right off the top of the movie with like the propaganda right. things. The state loves you. Kind of Big Brother. Kind of 1984-ish. Right. And they use a trope that I see a lot and I don't understand. If this is the future, the not-too-distant future, if this is the future and technology is supposed to be so amazing and all that, why are all video displays glitchy as hell? And not only that, but the video displays that they use, <laughs> we have those in the office that I work in. Yep. Those are clear whiteboards. So they just superimposed a graphic of the news. Yeah. over a clear whiteboard that's, you know, installed on the wall of the break room that they shot this in at whatever low-rent studio they made it at. Mm -hmm. So anyway, the state director, controller, condor, there's also a politician, and politician is somebody who's trying to 
sort of not go against the state, but is trying to convince people that the state is not good. Right. And that's the right, person uh, that Condor is sent to kill. Right. Whatever he runs into the girl that he may or may not know. Because, well, because politician was going to yeah. have sex with Nina. That's the girl. Right. Although it was Nina in a wig. Right. Yes. So, yeah. And then there was like the scene with some like racial appropriation with uh, the would-be president and an Asian prostitute and these like two other dudes. And the acting in that scene was just an atrocity. <laughs> Meanwhile, in a completely different movie, the dude there that, that would be president, Condor is sent to kill him. Right. And he, like, basically says, can I have a cigarette first? Which I don't understand, you know? And he was in a hot tub, and I've tried to smoke cigarettes in a hot tub. It doesn't work. So anyway, he doesn't, he doesn't kill Nita. So Condor, like, escapes because they they're, now they're coming to kill him because he didn't finish the job. Right. You know, you know, all these people are like shooting at him and they must have been like leftovers from Star Wars. They must have been <laughs> stormtroopers or something because nobody can hit the guy. They finally right. take him out with like a poison dart. Yep. Because those are available. Yeah. Of course. They they take him out with a poison dart and then we get our first scene of like significant exposition where the controller and the director are having a conversation and the director says, what's your plan? And the controller says, well, we're going to use Gulag Plan 7. <laughs> and no one knows what the hell that means. And then it's just it just means we're going to reprogram him to kill people again. So right. I don't know why they gave it that name, because it never does anything or goes anywhere. There's Steven Seagal. He pulls out a sword. Because, of course, he pulls out a sword. Right. And then they, they go into this, like, flashback and all that stuff. Here's something I picked up on one of my notes that I wrote here about our friend Steven Seagal. Steven Seagal talks exactly like uh, 1990s music vocals. Like his <laughs> voice is louder. Like the breath, the breath coming out of his lungs is louder than his vocal cords. Yeah. Like seriously, if I was friends with Steven Seagal, I would be saying what all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I'm, I am sure he would he would just look at you through his incredibly black-dyed hair, mustache, and eyebrows and little oh glasses that he wears in every movie and just go, if you can't understand what I'm saying, maybe you should <laughs> listen harder. And you say, what? And he goes, if you should just listen harder. And you go, Man, can you talk a little louder? Because I can't hear you over the sound of the fluorescent lights buzzing. Condor gets, like, chased down into this bathroom, into this horrible fight scene, which is... I, I wrote down, ha, 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 in the fight scene. And I'm going to say this now. That's the best fight scene in this movie. Oh, yeah. And that's the one that's the most, like, like I, I mentioned Scott Atkins. Like, Scott Atkins is a B-movie actor, British guy. He does all kinds of stunt work in martial arts movies that go direct to video, and he's really fun to watch. But his films are great. This film is not. But it does have <laughs> that one dynamic fight scene in the bathroom where, like, it's cut well, it's well lit. Of all the scenes, it's the only one that's shot like in light. And that's something else too. I got written down here. The future is poorly lit. That was the <laughs> yes. only well lit shot in this movie. The rest of the movie is all just dark, yeah, and shadowy and stuff. So I don't remember if if Condor gets thrown into the mirror or Condor throws the other guy into the mirror. But like the mirror in the bathroom shatters into like a million pieces. Right. A million pieces no bigger than a dime. Yes. Except for one. Except for this one big ass shard that he pulls out and like kills the guy with. And yeah, he's he throws the guy into the mirror. 
Uh, yeah, okay. tries to do a roundhouse kick and he throws him. Ultimately, what happens is he's told that he has to go and kill the girl, Nina. And when yeah. he shows up, she's like, you can't kill me. You know me. Don't you remember that you know me? And he remembers mm -hmm. that he knows her, but he doesn't remember why he knows her, just that he's in love with her. So right. they break out together and run off into the night to try and figure out what to do next. So hold on. There's, there's another thing that I wrote down over here. Yep. So Condor, during the fight, took that big-ass shard to the back at one point. Like... Real deep, too. Yeah, yes. And I'm thinking, I, I wrote down in my notes over here, no lung puncture? <laughs> I mean, the guy got right in the back. I mean, that's where your lungs are, like, right there. Well, um, yeah, th th that, that's a consistent theme with this film because he gets, well, aside from getting stabbed with a shard of the mirror in that scene, a little bit later, well, and we should, rather than torment our audience with an in-depth, real description of the film, he gets, no. they get captured... He gets tortured by Vernon Wells, who was the like the villain strongman in Commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he was also yeah. in the Road Warrior with the Mohawk. Um, oh yeah, he's in Weird Science too. He's in Weird Science too, and you couldn't even shower yeah. with a girl. <laughs> so when he has Condor, yeah, they broadcast over certain channels on TV to certain people that he's being tortured. And he the torture rips, channel. He rips off one of his toenails from his big toe. Yep. And then he rips out one of his teeth with pliers before. Which, he, in my experience, teeth come out a lot easier than toenails. Yeah, and I don't he's, know. You should have buried the lead there. Yeah. Right, and and it would have been really much more much more likely that he spent the rest of the film like wheeling himself around in a wheelchair because I don't know how yep. much running, kicking, or anything else you can do with a toenail that's been ripped off. Right. So anyway, Richard Tyson comes and rescues him and sends Vernon Wells off and then ultimately kills Vernon Wells and says, oh, by the way, we're the resistance. Ha ha. You got to work with us now and go back and kill the director. So he's sent back to kill Steven Seagal. Yeah. During the torture scene, there's a karate dojo that was watching him get tortured. And I guess they yeah. know who he is, but that part of the film was never shot, apparently. So yeah, I wrote it down over here. It says, meanwhile, in a completely different movie. <laughs> right. So anyway, we'll just we'll just put that on the back burner because that's going to come back later and make you go, oh, that's right, those guys were in this. Um, yep. He goes off to kill the director and has a fight with Steven Seagal's stunt double, gets his ass wailed on, and then there's a conversation between the two of them, which is the only part of the film that seems to have been read, written by a person with, like, warm blood. <laughs> it's actually it's an alright conversation it's like why the world is the way that it is this is what you actually do for us you can be the new controller all you have to do is sort of join me and we'll rule the universe as father and son it's a well put together scene and Steven Seagal for all of his whispering delivers it okay he says yeah but the whole thing on, in that scene was he shows Condor or whatever his name is a video yeah, that he's going to be double crossed yeah, that the people that he's been fighting with are backstabbing him. They're yeah. using him as a pawn. And I was like, this is this is Total Recall, isn't it? Isn't yeah. this the plot to Total Recall? Isn't it this is. the same movie? It yeah. is It is indeed. And it was, it was so, so funny about that scene is, you know, Steven Seagal with this, I want to show you something. He turns on the wall-mounted whiteboard with the display overlaid on it. And yep. just at the right time, because they cut back and forth, to Richard Tyson and Nina having this conversation about how they're going to screw over and kill Condor. And that yeah. she was the perfect trap for him because 
He's been implanted with memories that he knows her, even though he doesn't. Ha ha ha! And then they're going to run off together and rule the world as husband and wife. Right. As if they would have those conversations anywhere. A couple other notes that I wrote down over here. I don't know exactly where they fit into the movie, but one, I wrote down, razors are very noisy. Yes. There was a scene when he was shaving. I don't know who the Foley artist was, but he was all about shaving. That was noisy. <laughs> it was like he was running a 60-grit sandpaper over a metal rod. Yeah. yeah, I was like, Jesus, what kind of hair do you grow, buddy? I shave every day in it. You know what it sounds like? It doesn't sound like anything because I use yeah. a razor. <laughs> and then there was one scene that like one of the ninjas or whatever where he gets on top of him and like twists his <laughs> neck. Yeah. Twists. Twists his head and breaks his neck, right? Yes. And that has been, that and thunder and lightning in movies, that has been a trope that drives me nuts. Yeah. Listen to me carefully, young listeners. You cannot break somebody's neck by turning it to the right. It doesn't work like that. That is a bone. You can't just break somebody's arm by like going click like that. A neck isn't going to break like that. I don't know why that's a thing in movies. No. Not unless you're like the strong man from like some cartoonish circus and the guy's like maybe eight years old. So that scene is actually wicked funny and it's one I flagged as well. And that's when Cronus, he's a guy that comes from the karate gym. He's also a special forces guy and he's brought in by the controller to go with Condor to get into the building where Steven Seagal, the director, lives so he can go in and kill him. So they're dressed up in like these like superhero armor suits on the roof of the building with two sniper rifles and they're sniping the guards. Condor says like, all right, you wait here and then I'll come back. And Cronus says, okay. I I keep wanting to say Cronut, like croissant donut. Yeah, that's what I... Yeah, my, my head wants to hear that word, too. Yeah. Right? As he's sort of rappelling over on the, the wire, he looks back, and a, a guy showed up, and he's fighting with Cronus, and just throws him off the roof to his death. Yep. And it's like, it takes like six seconds for them having this fight, and then, whoof, off he goes. <laughs> yeah, you can just see the look on Condor's face, like, should have had a contingency plan. Yep. <laughs> well, this is going to suck when I come back out. And at the end, he actually talks to him when he's laying there on the ground, kibbying with all of his broken bones. Saying, like, avenge me. And he's like, of course I will. Like a broken spork still inside the plastic, yeah. So at the end of the movie, he gets into the fight with Steven Seagal, and he, like, stabs him with, like, a pocket knife. (laughs) Yep. And that ends the fight. Everybody else, there was some really funny freaking kill scenes in this movie. Yes. There was one guy who defied all the logic that I know about tasers and shock sticks because like he shoved it in his mouth and the guy's head exploded like the movie scanners <laughs> yeah that's not how those work yes yeah i i don't know what kind of battery it has in it but i need one for my cell phone because right that was i mean enough to blow somebody's head off another note that i have over here is that steven seagal obviously did all of his scenes in one day and it was a short day at that he did. There's there's one element of, of like the end part of this movie that I thought was visually interesting, and I can tell you why he was doing it, why the director was doing dare. it. Don't you dare. So it's, it starts out when he's having the fight like on the stairs with the with the guys. He's coming into the building, and he's running down the hallway, and there's like this red and blue back gelled backdrop. And he yep. runs across that, and he's like in silhouette. And then he goes up the stairs, and it's well lit. And then he's in another hallway, and it's a longer bit of red and blue check like checkerboard almost but but gelled backdrop and he's in silhouette again and then he turns a corner and it's well lit and then he runs down a longer hallway same thing and when he gets into steven seagal's like 
I don't know, dressing room, apartment. It's one room that he never leaves for the whole film. Right. It's all that color. So everything is visually obscured. You can only make out Steven Seagal's mustache, hair, and glasses on his stunt guy, <laughs> on his stunt double. And that's where they have their fight in the, sh- in the, sh- in the shadows. And I thought, well, if you're going to hide him, that's how you do it, right? You visually sort of set up the way that the lighting gets closer. And the closer and closer you get to Steven Seagal, the harder it is to see that it's the stuntman. Yep. And there ends my admiration for anything in this film. He stabs the director. And much like the end of A New Hope, I'm like, okay, so you, you ended the empire. They ended the state. They killed the leader of the state. That doesn't end the hierarchy. There's still plenty of other people in command, <laughs> you know? Well, there have to be, but, you know, not in this movie. There's only, like, yeah. seven people in the whole movie. Right, exactly. You know, I'm, I'm quite sure that they don't run the entire planet without some sort of hierarchy contingency plan. Right. But, anyway, they killed the director by stabbing him a little bit in the uh, in the abdomen, I guess. <laughs> it's in Steven Seagal's giant protruding belly. Yep. And then the credits happen. And no, then, no, no, no. There's another scene. Wait. And then the worst scene imaginable happens. Steven Seagal comes into the room where Steven Seagal <laughs> is sitting. Yeah. Because the director didn't get stabbed. The director's. I guess that's the guy. The the body double that's been doing all the fighting in the right. movie. His brother, his twin brother got stabbed. Right. So now they're alluding to a potential for the perfect weapon part two, which don't you dare. So, don't you even consider that, Mr. Seagal. Well, there's one scene in between stabbing Steven Seagal and Steven Seagal revealing he's a twin brother. Yeah. Right? Which is as Condor is leaving, he's walking down the stairs and all of the soldiers are coming running up. Right, yep. and there's this like tense scene. They've all got guns on him, and he starts like taking off his shirt, very Jason Statham from the the transporter movies. And yep. as he's getting ready, clearly to get himself killed to death by machine gun fire, all of the yep. karate guys run up the stairs as well and start to fight with the soldiers. Oh right, yeah. And then it just cuts to Steven Seagal talking to Steven Seagal in the office, and then a very far away shot of Steven Seagal stunt double walking with soldiers to a helicopter or something. And that's the end of the movie. Right. For the long-awaited The Perfect Weapon Part 2. The other perfect weapon. Do you have any final thoughts? Because I have some. Uh, no. No. <laughs> All right, well. Put it this way. Before you give your final thoughts, uh, something that we've been trying to do but we keep forgetting to do, I'm going to give this movie with one being an excellent film and ten being completely unwatchable. I'm going to give this movie seven and a half chuds. All right. I'm going to give it a little bit better notes than you. I'm going to give it six chuds, and I'll tell you why. One, I watched this movie in the exact way that this movie is meant to be watched while I was doing something else that took a lot of my concentration. (laughs) So I I had it on when I was doing a cooking project in my kitchen. So I would go from paying attention to the movie. There's not a lot of dialogue, so whenever they'd start to talk, I would pay attention if it was at all possible for me to do so. And then I would go back to what I was doing and then sort of see the fight scenes were going on in the background and then I was okay, right? In that respect, that 89 minutes that it ran, it helped me time out what I was cooking. So in that respect, it was it had benefit. What did you think of the movie, Jeff? It was delicious. <laughs> it was delicious, yeah. I made a fantastic play of Ratatouille while I was uh, building it. And the other thing is they use so much freaking slow motion in this movie 
that it's probably really only like 45 minutes long. <laughs> because there's so much. It's like every scene in the first 25 minutes is a slow motion scene punctuated by non-slow motion scenes where characters say something. All right. So overall rating, it seems like it's about average of seven chuds. Sounds about uh, right. Good film to watch with a bunch of friends and some pizza and beer or whatever. This would have made a good virtual movie night, I think. But you got to be with people who, who are going to talk. Because yeah. if you try to pay attention to the movie, you'll fall asleep in a matter of like seven minutes. But if there's other stuff going on, it's perfect thing to have on in the background because it's incredibly stupid and it's in instantly forgettable. All right, so before we wrap up the show, I do have the answer to my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Oh, I'm nobody here by that name. All right. So, if you were a mailman and you worked all over the country, you mm -hmm. would have noticed a pattern. What is the most popular street name in the United States of America? I'm going to go with something super obvious. Go on. Main Street. That was my guess, too. And we're both right? wrong. And we're, yeah. both, oh, we're both wrong. Is it both like wrong. Center Street? That might be another good one. That is a good one. None, and it's not. The most common street name in the United Sniffle States Avenue. of America is Second Street. Really? Came yep. in second, huh? Yeah, isn't that funny? The first place is second. <laughs> well, I've never seen a place that's called First Street. Go to Street Go to the First Street. First Street what? First I don't know. I've right. seen a lot of Second Streets. Sure. Right. So, yeah, there is no, oddly enough, there's no First Street. There's always a Second Street. All right. So, that's going to wrap up the show for this week. We'll see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. <laughs> Good night, Jeff. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. You can find us and message us on Instagram and Facebook using TWWWBLY. Make sure you tell all your friends how much you love our podcast. Word of mouth is way, way cheaper than advertising. <laughs>